Hello and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where we're finally cashing in on this whole true crime thing. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. You do know that we make exactly zero dollars on this podcast, right? Wait, then what did I declare on my taxes? the scenes we talked about taxes for a good five minutes trying to figure out if you declare income boy we're grown-ups i'm glad we got some goofs out of the way now yeah there's i remembered when i was writing this why we don't do a lot of true crime episodes and it's because there's not a lot that's funny about it i'm not henry zabrowski i can't pull this out of my ass like yeah this is I'm sure we'll find our own way to make goofs, but honestly, it's not a very funny story. So everybody buckle up for that. Uh, if you if you are sensitive about murder or the murder of children, I would maybe just skip this one. Yep. Speaking of, <laughs> yep. I'm going to do how I always introduce all these episodes. Have you ever heard of the Bear Brook murders, Emily? Yes. Uh, yes, I have. I listen okay. to the podcast. Great. I feel like I probably recommended the podcast you to you. Um. Great. Yeah, and also uh, Billy Jensen of Jensen and Holes uh, did some like major investigative work on the case, and I read about yeah. it in his book. He was on the podcast too. I remember, yeah, and I re-listened yeah. this weekend. Um, yeah, so that's actually my like primary source for this episode is the Bear Brook podcast, uh, which was done by Jason Moon of New Hampshire Public Radio. It is, I would say, the definitive source mm-hmm. on a lot of this case stuff. If you are even mildly interested in this, I would go. It is an amazingly well done podcast. I re-listened to it over the weekend as I was prepping my notes for this, and oh, it's so good. <laughs> and it, it goes much deeper into all of this. So, and of course, it's got interviews with everybody. Like, if you haven't listened to it, go listen to Bear Brook. It's one of the few non-comedy true crime podcasts that I've actually enjoyed because my thing is I can't handle true crime if it's too too dry. Yeah, I actually I usually will recommend this podcast to people with the caveat do not look at do not look up anything on the case beforehand. Oh, yeah, you want you want it to be a surprise. There's lots of fun twists. Um but I'm going to take all the twists now. They're my twists. <laughs> Additional research from uh, the New Hampshire Department of Justice, uh, a couple of radio stations, WBUR uh, and WMUR, and the Boston Globe. Ooh. So, I don't know why I went, I, I don't Yeah, the there's Boston nothing Globe. very... I mean, they're all fine sources. Uh, so our story begins in the summer of 1985 in the town of Allenstown, New Hampshire, uh, which is about, like, I think, like, 4,500 people. Pretty, I would consider it a small town, which is something because I am very particular about how people use the definition. But yeah, how many people were in the town where you grew up? 2,800. So yeah, when people say, yeah, I live in a small town, you know, it's only 25,000 people, then I get mad. Yeah, that's, that's a town. That's just a town. Like it's that's not just a town. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know there's someone out there yelling their head off. It's like, I lived in a town of 250 people. Congrats, you lived like probably in a cult compound. Shut up. I say the nearest towns actually to my house or my dad's house are both like maybe 100 people. Those are small towns. That's not even a town. That's a village. That's basically just some houses and a bar. Yeah. It's literally <laughs> always houses and a bar, maybe a store. Houses, a bar, a church, and like a gas station. <laughs> Gotta have the church. We are 
already derailed and we are in the middle of the first bullet point. We gotta be. We gotta keep it light. <laughs> so actually, it wasn't quite in Allenstown, so it's really just outside of it. So it's in the forest <laughs> of Bear Brook State Park. Jesus. All that talk about towns. But it it's relevant. It's, you know, it's a small town. Uh, so a group of kids were playing hide and seek. Uh, and while doing so, they discovered a 55-gallon barrel in the middle of the woods. It hadn't been sealed properly and was leaking what uh, they described as a white liquid that smelled as smelled like rotten milk. Literally just sounds like the opening to, like, uh, Stranger Things. <laughs> yeah. Sounds truly terrible. Because they're dumb kids, they tip the barrel over. Because oh that's my what God. kids do. I assume it was a group of, like, boys, little boys. Yeah, that's the impression I got. I think the podcast says they were playing this version of hide and seek where, like, they hid in the woods and then one of them was on a four-wheeler. <laughs> Okay, yeah. And the one in the four-wheeler was, yeah, it was a bunch of boys. Um, but they never actually took a look at what was inside. So the barrel would remain in the woods undisturbed until November of later that year, when it was rediscovered by a hunter who took a closer look and immediately called the police. Thank God. It just reminds me of the Casey Anthony story where the the bag with the, the body was, like, off on the side of the road somewhere. And, like, a truck driver stopped by and saw it and, like, didn't do shit. And then he came back months later and, like, poked at it. Like, just say something the first time. <sighs> Reminds me also of like, um, have you heard of the boy in the box case in Philadelphia? Oh my god, yeah. Where it, like it was discovered maybe three or four times before someone called the police because people were out. Like, I think one guy was maybe like poaching, and one guy was not Smoking supposed weed. to be out there. Yeah, so like they didn't want to admit why they were out there, so they just didn't say anything. That also happened with the discovery of one of Willie Pickton's uh, in up in Canada's victims. This this guy found the skull in like a swamp. And then, like, he left because they didn't have, I think it was when they didn't, you know, like, have cell phones and stuff. So he was going to go to the gas station and call, but, like, he didn't. And then he, like, went to bingo and had dinner and called the next afternoon. People. I mean, I don't know what the police would have done with a Found skull it? a day and a half earlier. But, like, I mean, it wouldn't have made a difference other than, like, they would have started earlier. But, like, evidentiary-wise, still. It's not one of those things where you can be like, <laughs> someone else will find it. Like, we know how that goes. Someone else's problem. Uh, So inside this barrel were the skeletal remains of a woman and a young girl. Both had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head and dismembered before being sealed inside the barrel. Uh, How long they had been there was anyone's guess. Most estimates put the placement of the barrel sometime between 1977 and 1981. Very cool. The case was turned over to the New Hampshire State Police, who began the task of trying to identify the victims, who they presumed were a mother and daughter, but this is also like mid-80s and... DNA wasn't a thing yet. Not a big thing anyway. They were getting there. It was um, a thing, but like it wasn't super practical for a small town. Yeah. Uh, there were no records of any missing pers- persons cases matching that description. And given how small Allenstown was, like it was the kind of town where everybody knew everybody. It didn't seem that they were seen. It didn't seem likely that they were locals because mm-hmm. someone would, you know. Yeah. Probably remember <laughs> if they knew a mother and daughter that had gone missing. Composite drawings of the victims were released, uh, but this also failed to turn up any leads. So the case soon went cold, and two years after the barrel was discovered, police released the bodies. Uh, parishioners of St. John Baptiste Church raised money for a burial and a headstone, and the woman and her daughter were laid to rest in the church cemetery. Oh, that's nice. Their headstone bore the description... Here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl aged 8 to 10. 
Their slain bodies were found on November 10th, 1985 in Bearbrook State Park. That May is a lot. <laughs> I'm not done yet. Oh my God. <laughs> you interrupted the touch sorry, of description. Sorry. Uh, May their souls find peace in God's loving care. That is a lot of information for a headstone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so then in 2000, this is 15 years later, uh, John Cody, a detective with the New Hampshire State Police, uh, was assigned to the case. There had been little to no movement on the case in the 15 years since um, the bodies had been found. With no solid leads, he decided to return to the scene of the crime and survey the area. Just How to kind of like they looking, though? I mean, I, I go back and forth on this because, like, I wouldn't be surprised if police incompetence was a factor. It usually Just, is. It usually is. But also, like, just given the time, I don't know what else they could have done. Especially yeah. now, thinking, knowing the resolution, which this case does have most of a resolution. Spoiler alert. 85% of a resolution. Yeah. I, just, I don't know what their options were, I guess. It just very much feels like, I don't know. And then people just kept going, yeah. I don't know, for 15 years. I don't years. know. Yeah. Uh, not John Cody, though. So what he did... <laughs> Was he wanted to go back to the scene of the crime, in, or not the scene of the crime, the scene where the bodies had been dumped. Probably, presumably they had been killed somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just wanted to get a sense of the location and kind of just look for any clues that may have been missed. Uh, in after 15 years, you think, that's probably not going to be a lot of stuff. Except, I know what's about to happen, and I just, I can't. I know. Just 300 feet from where the barrel had been found, Detective Cody stumbled upon a second one. Inside were two more bodies, two young girls, uh, the older between the ages of two and four and the younger between the ages of one and three. I would say that that is distinctly a case of police incompetence. You search the fucking area. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into it a little bit. Um, so DNA testing would later confirm that the young woman in the first barrel was the mother of two of the girls. So the oldest who had been discovered in the barrel alongside her and also the youngest girl in the second barrel. Uh, there was no biological relationship between the middle child or any of the other victims. Uh, the police have all been fairly certain that the bodies had all been dumped in the state park at the same time, which means the second barrel had been there in the woods at the time the first barrel was discovered. And yeah, as you brought up, there are some reasonable questions as to how this could have been missed. Uh, I will say, just to put things in perspective, 300 feet is the length of a football field. And we're not talking straight line of sight. We are talking 300 feet in a heavily wooded area. Could their perimeter have been bigger? Probably. That being said, it's not like you standing at the side of the first barrel, you wouldn't have any indication that that barrel was there. I guess. It just seems like... I can see it both ways, honestly. Like, I can see, yeah, it's probably reasonable to have missed that. The woods are the woods. Second, I mean, maybe draw a a slightly bigger (laughs) search perimeter. But that being said... I just got a text from someone. um, Apparently, they're making two new Ted Bundy movies. One with Chad Michael Burry and one with Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood is a fine actor. I don't... Do we really I don't want either of Ted them Bundy to Zach Efron was fine. Like, I haven't seen that one, and it's just because I'm Ted Bundy'd out. I don't care. Stop it. Stop making those movies. So, uh, children in a barrel. Yeah, so the discovery of the second barrel brought upon about renewed hopes that investigators might be on the verge of identifying the victims now that they had, you know, more of them and prob- <laughs> presumably a little more context. Uh, but again, a search of missing persons cases failed to turn up any new leads. One of the most frustrating things about serial killer cases 
is waiting for more bodies to be able to determine something about a case. Like, for yeah. all, I'm not an investigator. For all I fucking know, it could be necessary. But it just feels like, guess we'll wait and see. And then another lady's dead. Hope he screws up next time. Yeah. <sighs> it's bad. Uh, the case will later be turned over to the New Hampshire Department of Justice in their newly formed cold case unit, who in turn solicited the help of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Uh, in 2015, they released new composite images of all four victims, as well as the results of some radioisotope testing that confirmed the three related victims had been living together before their deaths, but that the unrelated child had spent most of her life somewhere else entirely. Damn, that is some crazy science. It's I tried to get in the details of radioisotope testing, and there's no way to briefly describe it. So <laughs> if that's a thing you're interested in. Go listen to the Bear Brook podcast because they do go into it in, t- in detail. I just do not have the bandwidth. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot to break down, yeah. So, meanwhile, across the country, completely different coast, police at the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office were unraveling what at the time seemed to be a completely unrelated mystery. That's where Paul Holes worked. It is where Paul Holes worked. Uh, so at a New Year's Eve party in 2000, uh, Unsun Jun introduced her friends and family to her new boyfriend, a man named Larry Vanner. Uh, Unsun Jun was a chemist by trade as well as an accomplished artist. Like she was in, big into potter, pottery. She had like a whole studio. Um, so right from the start, her friends started questioning what exactly she saw in Vanner. Uh, her cousin, Elaine Ramos, described him as, like, creepy. Like, she got chills down her spine. It's required. His name's Larry. So she described him as unkempt and had long, dirty fingernails. He literally drove Ugh. to the party in a windowless white van. Like, just God. a lot of red flags. Uh, just walk into a store and be like, I'll take the rapist special, please. Essentially. When she tried to make conversation with him later in the night, he, like, got real cold and told her, like, don't question me about my past. Which, again, red flag. This man is made of red flags. He was stitched together <laughs> with sheets of red flags. But when Aline tried to bring this up with her cousin, Unsun grew angry and accused Aline of not wanting her to be happy. I think <laughs> it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, she was in her 40s. It sounds like dating had been hard for her. So, of course, she finds someone who seems to be into her, and I, yeah. I get it, but also, like, girl, you can do better. She's a fucking chemist. Yeah, like. Smart lady. Standards, ladies. Just a few. This, Yeah, this is just a general PSA to everyone out there. Have standards. Uh, Elaine wasn't the only one to raise concerns about Vanner. It soon created a rift between Utsun and her family to the point that, like, she was no longer on speaking terms with Elaine or really most of her family. No dude is worth that. Unless your family sucks, like, there, I guess there are reasons. Yeah, but- they say there are legitimate, like, scenarios where your family just straight up sucks and sure, go live with your new hot boy toy. But this is not one of those. If your family hates someone, if your friends hate someone, because you choose to hang around with your fucking friends, he's probably not good. Uh, So Unsun and Vanner were married in an unofficial ceremony in 2001 and Vanner moved into Unsun's home. Uh, In June of 2002, she disappeared. Of course she did. Yeah, this all tracks. That's what happens when you marry a creep. She had made plans with a fellow artist friend to go go to an art show, but never turned up. So when the friend contacted Vanner, he he gave her a whole bunch of excuses as to, like, why she was gone. None of them were very good. Uh, And after weeks with no word from Unsun, this friend called the police because she was a good friend. Yes. I assume you'd call the police if I went missing. Uh, Yes, I would. 
Assuming I know. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so they questioned Vanner. Uh, he claimed Unsoon was overseeing some renovations to one of his properties elsewhere in California. And I he don't kept think saying, that man owns properties. Like, just from the description, he does not seem like a man who's in the real estate game. See, yes, this is accurate. And also what I was thinking, he kept telling people he had other properties. And, you know, he'd, I doubt it. I very much doubt it. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, then he claimed she had had a mental breakdown and that she was seeing a therapist in Oregon. Yeah. Uh, he ga- he actually gave them the name of a, a facility. They called it. It was a real facility. But when they described Unsoon, they're told that there was no such patient matching that description. So they're starting to be a little suspicious. Um, and then they run a background check on Mr. Larry Vanner. And they find no official records for him whatsoever. So he's gone from being a man made out of red flags to a man made out of red flags, pi- like piloting a hot air balloon made out of red flags. Sprinkling red flags across the countryside of California. Essentially, yes. This is, I, that's a good metaphor, Emily. <laughs> so police take his fingerprints. They process them while he's still in custody. And they are able to connect Larry Vanner with a number of different aliases, notably Curtis Kimball and Gordon Jensen. Uh, the police suspect neither of them are actually his true identity. They think All of those probably, sound like serial killer names. I don't know how yeah. he does it. Uh, he does have a criminal history, though. So he charges for drunk driving, uh, driving a stolen vehicle. And he also had this conviction for child abandonment. Ugh. So in 1986, while using the alias Gordon Jensen, he had left his five-year-old daughter Lisa with an elderly couple in an RV park. Uh, he was also, they discover, in violation of his parole. I mean, yeah. But- because of this, they can search his house, and they do. Uh, and when they do, they find Unsoon's dismembered body in a crawl space buried beneath a pile of cat litter. Just now, indescribably bad. I know the the cat litter is meant to, like, desiccate and take care of the smell. As an owner of cats, cat litter barely covers the smell of cat poop. <laughs> you tried. Yeah, like, that house could not have smelled okay. So... Curtis Kimball, as they're kind of referring to him now, because this is the earliest alias they can tie him to. They still don't think that's his real name. Uh, he eventually pleads guilty to Unsun's murder, accepting a sentence of 15 years to life. So this detective who had been on Unsun's case, her name's Roxanne Grunhind. She, oh, I love this she, bitch. She's great. She can't let it go. There's like, there's so many things that bother her about Kimball, but the thing that's bothering her the most is this child abandonment case. So, because Kimball obviously has this established habit habit of using aliases, she starts to wonder if Lisa's identity wasn't false as well. She goes and contacts the police down in San Bernardino, who had handled Lisa's case back in the 80s. And just her luck, they still had a sample of Lisa's blood that they had taken back when the charges had initially been filed. Uh, Why would they need a sample of this girl's blood? I mean, great that they had it. So it sounds like at the time, they too were suspicious as to whether or not Kimball was the girl's father. Um, and we're going to do a paternity paternity test, but for whatever reason, it didn't happen. I think it's probably because he pled guilty. Okay. And so they just didn't end up doing it. But they had I mean, held on to the blood sample. It seems like something you probably should have done regardless, <laughs> but okay. You would think so. But again, the police. <laughs> So, Sting sucks. Grunheide 
had the paternity test done, and it is revealed that, in fact, Kimball is not Lisa's biological father, Mm -hmm. which opens up this whole other can of worms. So if she isn't Kimball's daughter, one, who the hell is she? And two, is it possible that she was an unidentified missing person? So... Again, he, he's gone from made of red flags, piloting balloons, sprinkling red flags, to secretly being the oogie boogie man from Nightmare Before Christmas, just full of cans of worms. Essentially, yeah. It's the literal worst person. <laughs> <laughs> this, this guy, he is human garbage. Red flags filled with worms. <laughs> so let's go back in time once more to oh. 1986. When a man calling himself Gordon Jensen arrives at the Holiday Host RV Park in Scotts Valley, California. So with him is a five-year-old girl, Lisa, who he claims is his daughter. Uh, They become friendly with an elderly couple. Their names are Richard and Catherine Decker. So they they were kind of neighbors. They would keep an eye on Lisa when Gordon was busy or at work. Uh, And he had told him that Lisa's mother had died when she was a baby. Uh, His stories on this varied a bit. Um... I think he mostly told them it was cancer. He was known to have claimed at one point that she had died in a car accident. I'm not sure if that was the story he told he told the Deckers or someone else, but... They're both classics. Regardless, yeah. Uh, you would think you would remember how the mother of your child died. Maybe she had cancer and was in a car wreck on her way to cancer business. I mean, it's possible. It, all, it didn't take long for the Deckers to catch on that something was wrong. Lisa looks thin and kind of malnourished she and gordon are living out of essentially what's a camper truck which it's not a great life for a five-year-old kid this isn't like the cute like tiny houses today where like that hipster couple redoes a vw bus and makes it all cute like fuck i love those videos though there's so much fun. like <laughs> i'm much too old to live like that now oh yeah um my knees couldn't handle it but we we had a camper van when i was growing up like for camping purposes and it's great for a weekend or like a road trip wouldn't want to live in one no thanks no but all the power to those who do yeah people so. with good knees and steel backs <laughs> Gordon eventually admits to the Duckers that he's having a hard time caring for Lisa on his own. You know, single fatherhood. It's very hard. I don't think it's that hard, but... (laughs) The Deckers offered him a solution. So they had a daughter back in San San Bernardino. San Bernardino. San Bernardino. Cannot talk tonight. Or really any night we ever record, but that's (laughs) besides the point. Uh, so their daughter, she had, she was having trouble having children of of her own, so she was looking to adopt. Uh, so Gordon leaves Lisa in their care for what's supposed to be only a few weeks. So the idea being that, like, the Deckers would take her back to their daughter. Uh, they'd spend some time with her in San Bernardino. And it was essentially like a trial run for adoption. Yeah, okay. Uh, once back in San Bernardino, it becomes clear that their instinct had been right. So Lisa began to show signs of abuse. And it was soon detailing how Gordon had molested her. God damn it. Like I said, human garbage. Uh, so by the time they returned to the, to the RV park, now very eager to sign those adoption papers, uh, just so they're able to ensure Lisa's safety, mm-hmm. Gordon had completely peaced. He was gone. <laughs> so Probably not the worst thing in the world. Like No. No, I think this was very lucky for her in the yeah. long run. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for the Deckers, because they did not have legal guardianship over Lisa, they were forced to give custody of her to the county. So Ugh. she was put into foster care and later adopted. Uh, it should be noted that by all accounts, Lisa has had went on to lead a normal, happy, secure life. She seems to be doing really good. Um, Very good. She's, she's more or less anonymous. I don't think we know like what name she goes by now, but 
Probably don't need to. to Seems like she could use a break. Yeah, let her go live her life. So, good for her. I hope she's happy. Uh, A warrant was issued for Gurn's arrest um, for child molestation and child abandonment. Uh, Police tracked him down, but anything they could use turned out to be a dead end. So, like, he... The social security number he was using was phony. The camper he lived in was registered to an address that turned out to be a motel room. Like... God, if he wasn't, like, nothing sack of shit, those skills could have been used for something useful. Yeah. Uh, so all they had to go on was this fingerprint they found from the RV park. They traced it back to a man named Curtis Kimball. Uh, but apart from an arrest record for drunk driving, there wasn't really anything else they could use to find him. Who is this man? In 1988, though, he was arrested again. And this is when they were finally able to track him down. Um, he was arrested for driving a stolen car. Yeah, like I mentioned, so there were suspicions even then that Lisa wasn't his daughter. Um, but Kimball took a plea chart, plea deal on the child abandonment charges, so the child molestation and the stolen car charges charges were dropped. Those stolen feel like the charges, more important ones. You would think, but uh, that's also how plea deals work. So Ugh. in typical, you know, late 80s garbage, he was sentenced to three years in prison, served about a year and a half before being released on parole in 1990, at which point he dipped again and was gone. And If you need me, I'm just going to crawl under this desk. Yeah. Uh, he wouldn't be questioned about the case again until 2003, when he was in prison for the murder of Unsun Jun. Police got nothing out of him. He died in 2010 without ever Fuck. admitting to where he had found Lisa. Fuck! <laughs> Fuck yeah, this guy, guy was... <laughs> Uh, so by this time, police are rightly suspicious of his claims that Lisa's mother had died of cancer or a car accident or of any cause that wasn't him murdering her. <laughs> Lisa, too, uh, she had told the Deckers this really weird story back in 1986 that arriving before that before she and Gordon had arrived at the RV park, she had siblings that were traveling with the, along with her as well, and that they had died while camping after eating grass mushrooms. Uh, uh, so i don't have any goofs i'm goofless there's nothing funny about any of this except how much of a garbage garbage person this guy is that's not funny it's just you know it's not haha funny it's just like you have to laugh because the world is so terrible funny it's easy to make fun of a piece of shit it's not easy to come up with jokes about kidnapped children yeah. Uh, detectives identified a number of missing cases that uh, matched Lisa's description. All of them were ruled out by DNA. No luck there. Mm. Uh, it would actually be Lisa herself that suggested they submit her DNA to a genealogy website. Oh, uh, hell yeah. <laughs> something like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. Um, something commercial which potentially could potentially uncover a familial link. I need to get my DNA in the system so I can pin all of my relatives who have committed crimes. <laughs> The detective on this case, a man named Peter Headley, he was initially kind of skeptical. This was back in 2014. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't a thing detectives did yet. We'll get into why, because this is the first case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but with no better leads to go off of, they buy a kit. She sends in a swab in, like, 2014. Almost immediately, they begin finding matches. They're all fourth or fifth cousins, though, which is too distantly related to have any information relevant to the case. Yeah, like I couldn't name, name a fourth cousin. Fifth. I can't. I maybe know a handful of my second cousins. It's very slim. So, with no genealogical expertise himself, Headley reached out to Barbara Ray Venter, a genetic genealogist you may know better as the woman who would later identify Joseph D'Angelo as a Golden State killer. Another true hero. Her and Roxanne. 
should pair up and just solve crimes. Ray Inventor is great. I like her a lot. Uh, so at the time, she had been volunteering with this website that helped connect adoptees with, with their biological families through the use of genealogy, which is kind of the process she used for Lisa, except, you know, with most adoption cases, you have at least... Do you have papers? Yeah, you've got some papers. You've got, like, a general idea of where and when this person was adopted from. Like, Yeah, you don't just have the memory of a five-year-old and some jackass. Yeah, so, like, Lisa's family could literally be anywhere at this point. So it's going to be a whole thing. (laughs) It's going to be a whole thing. (laughs) It starts with those fourth and fifth cousins. So that the website had already identified. So Mm -hmm. using birth and death records, marriage announcements, obituaries, all of that, Ray Venter traces the family line back until she's able to identify an ancestor that uh, Lisa and her cousins have in common. From there, she has to build out every branch of the family tree. Can you go to school for this? Like, I think I need to change my profession because this sounds super fun. So Lisa's family in particular was massive. I I feel like every family is massive when you go back this many generations. Oh, yeah. Still, yeah. like, sh- there were 18,000 people on just the maternal side of her family oh, and 25,000 in all. Yeah. So, and then basically you have to go down and you have to, like, identify, like, which of these are possible contenders for Lisa. Like, how... Do we know we have everybody they were calling, you know, like as they identified people calling them to get them to submit their DNA to help kind of continue building this out? Like it was, I think it took them 10 months. Or, oh, my God. Actually, no, I'm not sure. I think they said it was like 10,000 hours total. And she oh had God. like 100 volunteers working for her. Like it was insane. So, okay. Yeah, it took over a year, actually. That was the timeline. But in 2016... Ray Venter and Headley managed to discover Lisa's true identity. Her name was Dawn Bowden, and her mother, Denise, had been from Manchester, New Hampshire. Hmm. With this discovery, Headley reached out to the de- to detectives in New Hampshire who in turn went and go went to interview Denise's relatives, including her grandfather. So according to her grandfather, he had last seen Denise and her baby daughter Dawn on Thanksgiving 1981. She had arrived there with an older boyfriend named Bob Evans. <gasps> so when shown a mugshot of Curtis Kimball, the grandfather was able to identify him right away. The name Bob Evans sounds familiar. Hold on, let me Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bob Evans is a chain restaurant that serves like mac and cheese and shit. You got him, Emily. You got him. I got him. Well, unfortunately, there's no Bob Evans within 100 miles of me. So, yep. Anyway, the case. So, no one had seen Denise since that Thanksgiving in 1981. So, like Eunsoon June, she had become estranged from her family. And it's the 80s, and people drift away, and you just you don't talk to them again. Facebook isn't a thing. If you lose their number or they change their number. I guess, but it's his daughter. Granddaughter, but still. Granddaughter. It's also... I think they don't really get into it, and I'm not quite, I can't really speak to what the dynamics were, but it's described in the podcast that she's had kind of a complicated family. Mm, Okay. So I think, yeah. Okay. Whatever that means, it could mean a lot of things. Yeah, it could Uh, go anyway with that. Similar to Eunsoon June, like, it wasn't that Eunsoon's family didn't love her, it was that this Larry Vanner asshole (laughs) comes in and finds a way to isolate her from her family. Yeah, one would say it's the common denominator, yeah. I feel like that's also kind of a part of it, but anyway. 
Uh, they did a thorough, police did a thorough search of the home in Manchester where Denise had lived with Bob, thinking that her remains might be there the way Unsoon's were in her own home, uh, but turned up nothing. Uh, the police assumed she had been murdered, but no one made the connection between Denise Bowden and the bodies in the barrels at Bearbrook Park until a case manager at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, like, finally connected the dots. Can you imagine, like, that day for that person, just fucking scrolling through files, like, maybe eating a sandwich, just going about your day and, like, having that light bulb moment? I am honestly surprised that, like, it feels like, the bodies in the barrel were a fairly major case in New Hampshire. And you bring it, the attention of a missing woman to the New Hampshire police at the same time frame. And like the fact that no one puts this together before someone in Deckmac does. <laughs> I mean, I don't know the dynamics of their office, but there have definitely been times in like my office where we'll do something and we'll keep doing something. And then all of a sudden someone will be like, why are we doing this? And then everyone else is like, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. They ran a DNA test thinking Denise could be the adult victim. But when that came, but that came back negative. What? Sorry, I've forgotten most of this story. This is an experience for me. This is why I find this case so interesting is there. It never goes the way you expect it to go. Uh, So, yeah. So this wasn't the adult woman. Uh, But they did run another DNA test and discovered that Bob Evans or Curtis Kimball or Terry Vanner, whoever he was, Mm -hmm. was the biological father of the middle unrelated child. Oh my God. So they can, they can connect him to the barrels. There are other connections. So Bob Evans had arrived in New Hampshire in the late seventies. He had found work as an electrician working to dismantle an old mill in the area. Like you do. Yep. He knew and had worked with the owner of a camp store, which had been just outside the state park near where the first barrel had been found. Uh, He'd even done some electrical work there. So the cause of death, blunt force trauma to the head, was the same as Unsoon June. And like the Allenstown 4, Unsoon had also been dismembered. Finally, the plastic bags the bodies had been wrapped in had been tied shut with electrical wire. Ooh. So there's a lot to suggest that he is, in fact, the man who killed the woman and children found in the barrels. Would that be like circumstantial? I mean, yeah, no, it's really he's related to one of the victims, though. He is related to one of the vi- It is technically all circumstantial evidence, circumstantial evidence, but don't necessarily discount circumstantial evidence. Because well, no, I mean, it draws a fairly obvious conclusion. <laughs> you just need a lot more circumstantial evidence yeah. than you do like confessions and shit. it needs to be. Yeah, it needs to be a lot of different little strings, not just the one thing. So, Bob Evans, this name, was also another alias. Uh, And as he was long dead by this time, there was little chance that they'd be getting a straight answer out of Bob. Wanting to trace his true identity and suspecting that there were probably going to be more murders in his wake, the police turned again to Barbara Vaventer. And just as she had found Lisa's true name, she found Bob's too. Actually, fairly quickly. His name was Terry Peter Rasmussen. So, we are not going to talk... At length about fucking Terry. <laughs> we don't have the time. And he's, I've said it before and I'll say it again. He's human garbage. He just lived one of those like dirtbag <laughs> lives. Yeah. So if you are interested in information about him, Bearbrook, again, goes a lot more in depth. They interview some of his children, which actually is interesting. Oh, good. Um, he has children left. <laughs> yeah. But as a point of interest, he is the first criminal to have been identified through genetic genealogy. So. Great milestone there, Terry. For some reason, I'm 
like, glad it was him that got the quote-unquote honor, just like a, like I said, a dirtbag instead of D'Angelo, who probably would have taken that as, like, a a win or something. It would have been something, uh, yeah, another accomplishment, I guess. It's a weird word to use. I mean, mean? fuck both of them, but I feel like (laughs) D'Angelo would have gotten a bigger thrill out of that than fucking Terry. Yeah, like, they had to, you know, create this whole new line of investigation just to catch me. Yeah, like, I can Mm. see that, too. Yeah, and this guy was dead, so he didn't even get to enjoy the honor. Yeah, fuck all of you. uh, At the end of the day, this leaves police in a very odd predicament. So they've essentially, they've solved the murder, but they have no idea who the victims are, which is not how murder cases go. I don't know if you guys follow a lot of that, but usually you got to identify the people before you can figure out who killed them. I mean, there are some cases where there have been victims that haven't been able to be identified like you got your dean coral victims who were too disintegrated yeah decomposed that's the word i wanted and like i think there were some bundy victims and that were like they know that he did that to these girls but they don't know who they are which like sucks mm-hmm. so hard that's honestly the worst part of it's, any it's of those the worst cases case. well no i guess catching him like still good but so it's not worst case scenario but it's pretty bad. So, considering their prior success, genetic genealogy was the obvious solution to this case of, you know, identifying the victims. It wasn't as straightforward, though, yeah, when it came to Allenstown, the Allenstown 4. So, specifically, investigators had some difficulty extracting DNA from the remains. Like, they had... It it was the 80s. (laughs) I hate to ask, but was there any other liquid in the barrel, like, acids or... I Other. honestly don't know. I'm assuming that he used something to try and speed up decomposition. Like, like lime or something? Maybe. Okay. It's never really said, and I honestly never really looked into detail. Okay. But, Just um, stuff that might make it harder to, to get yeah. DNA because, like, it desiccates the body or something. Yeah. So, like, essentially what they said is, like, they the remains had just been exposed to the elements for so long that a lot of their DNA was contaminated by bacteria. So the samples Ew. I get... Okay. It, yeah, it wasn't suited for the kind of autosomal DNA testing necessary for genetic genealogy. Okay. Um, so they would have to wait until 2017 and a new technique f- for DNA extraction that essentially rebuilt DNA from rootless hair. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> this case, and this is why I, like, say, like, yeah, it's possible that they just didn't look very hard for their for them back in the 80s. But I feel like a lot of this case hinges on, like, new technology. Like, that's yeah. what finally got the job done. So it's hard to say, like, if they had just looked a little harder, they could have figured it out when... I mean, it can be both. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh, so it did take months, but investigators finally managed to build genetic profiles for each of the three related Allenstown victims. And they were uploaded to GEDmatch, which is kind of the big DNA database that police will use for this uh, in the fall of 2018. But the investigators weren't the only ones searching for the victims' identities. And this is actually my favorite part of the story because this is just very cool. <laughs> and it all hinges on a research librarian, which you know Hell she's yeah. great. So, this research librarian, librarian, her her name is Becky Heath, and she considers herself kind of an amateur web sleuth, um, which normally I would roll my eyes eyes at, but she's a good one. Yeah, sometimes it works out. (laughs) So, she would have been working the case from an entirely different angle. So, she obviously doesn't have DNA to go off of. So, what she does is she spends hours on this Ancestry.com forum called Lost Family and Friends. So, this is a place where, like, a lot of people would post 
in the hopes that the community could help them reconnect with loved ones who they with whom they had lost touch. Like, especially if you weren't quite as well versed in hunting down things like marriage records and obituaries and things like that. Like, yeah. you put it out there, hopefully someone else who's really into that can help you search for that. There is someone on Reddit who can find anything you need. Yeah essentially. So Becky Heath, she scrolls through thousands of these posts, but one in particular catches her eye. So in February of 2000, someone had posted on the board looking for their half-sister. So the post read, Ralph Elroy McWaters, aka Tom, was a Marine stationed in California in the mid-1970s. He married Marty, in quotes, and they had a daughter, Sarah. Marty died in a car accident. Sarah was adopted by Marty's parents. Tom moved back to the Connecticut, New York area and died in the early 1980s, but not before fathering a son, Christopher. We are trying to locate Chris's half-sister, Sarah. So that's all the information she's got. But what she notices is this reference to a car accident, which is something she recognized as an excuse Terry Rasmussen had given about Denise Bowden. As I said during the Amityville murders, in every lie there is a tiny bit of truth. Not good truth, but... (laughs) No, mostly bad truths in this case. Uh, So she keeps reading the thread, and other things start falling into place. So in 2003, someone replies to this thread. They're also looking for a ceramic waters. Um, In this case, it was someone looking for his niece, and he was hoping that by finding his niece, he could find her mother, Marlis. So he wrote, I know my sister was married to someone named somebody named Tom that was in the military. I don't know if this is the same person, but it's worth a try. We haven't heard from her sister in a very long time. We thought she may be dead. So when I read this letter about Sarah and Tom, I started thinking and I called my mom. She said everything sounds right, but she had never adopted Sarah. We don't even know where she could be. We are also looking for her sister named Marie. I'm getting like goosebumps reading this because it's so eerie. So the thread actually, he posted that. No one replies to him. It Like the thread remains completely inactive until 2013. Um, just some other random user copy pastes in two state of California records. Like the first is a marriage record for a woman named Marlies Honeychurch in a Ralph Waters. Uh, and then the second is a later divorce between Marlies and a second husband, Michael Vaughn. So Heath takes these and she does some further searching and she finds the date of birth given for Marlies matches the age of the adult Bearbrook victim, as did the ages of her two daughters, Marie Vaughn and Sarah McWaters. So by now it's the fall of 2017. Terry Rasmussen has been identified, but the victims have not yet. So Heath posts about the lead on a Facebook forum, but it gets like no traction. No one really comments it, comments on it or notices it. And she kind of moves on. She keeps searching these forums. It was only after listening to the Bearbrook podcast that she thought about the post again and remembered how well this missing family had matched up with the Allenstown victims. Goddamn, podcasts do matter. <laughs> Maybe in not this, this case, one, but yes, <laughs> this one does not. The Bearbrook podcast matters. Yeah. So <laughs> she goes back to the original poster. She reaches out to them and asks if they have any more information on her on their half sister's mother, Marlies. Uh, so they did have a vague recollection that she had later remarried to a man whose last name was Rasmussen. Ah. So then she follows up with Marlies's siblings that had posted on the board, and they, too, confirmed that Marlies had been married to a man named Terry. Ugh. So Heath immediately <laughs> contacts Peter Headley, and in an extraordinary twist of timing, she sends her tip in the very same week Barbara Ray Venter uploads the DNA profiles to Jedmatch. Woohoo. 
This is exciting. I know. So Barbara hadn't even had a chance to review the matches before the names like landed on her desk. And then she goes to check them and there they are. That's kind of like, that's got to be a little infuriating. Like it's, (laughs) we went through all this work. All of this. (laughs) (laughs) It just gave me the fucking names. To be fair, it it really just kind of cut down on their search quite a bit. I think it gave them somewhere to focus their search. They did have to like go back and confirm all this and that it matched that being it's, said, it's kind of like in cartoons when like a character is struggling to do something and then one just walks up and like, yeah, does it like, oh, that wasn't too bad. I've been working on this story for months and he just <laughs> tweeted it out. It's that. It's literally that. It's that. So this thread is still up on Ancestry.com and it's it's eerie reading through it. There's a post in October 2018, which is the month Heath called in her tip. And it's from a, one of Marley's sisters. It just reads in all caps. Yes, please contact me. Very important. See, if in any other case, that sentence would stress me the fuck out. But yeah, gosh, I'm getting like all worked up. <laughs> this, <laughs> it's this is such your a Amityville. good story. Yeah. It's like, I hesitate to say I have a favorite case because that always it never sits right with me. But I love the way this one was resolved. I love how that they were one that they were able to identify them and I love how they did it. Yeah, no, that's why I like the Golden State Killer case. It's not that I like the the murders and stuff. Like I wish they hadn't happened, but like just the way that people like work together and did their individual shit and like didn't give up. Like it's amazing. Yeah. With the identity of the three related victims confirmed by DNA, the New Hampshire Department of Justice held a press conference in June 2019 announcing that there had been a break in the case. Um, they named I think you then. texted me when they did that. And like, we I'm both sure I lost did. our shit together. Yeah. Like I said, because um, Heath had been listening to it. The podcast was released before this and then the news came down. And yeah. And honestly, like, I remember. I remember hearing about this case like very early on in my days of being like a true crime person mm-hmm. when it was literally just like Reddit threads of name the creepiest crime you can ever think of. And it was just they found these barrels of bodies in the woods, like and only knowing that about it and then watching then this case unfold over the last few years has been fascinating. This is why people like true so. crime. It's not that we think Ted Bundy is hot and shit because he's <laughs> not Sadie. Sadie doesn't think Ted Bundy's hot. She makes fun of me. It's not important. But this is why people like true crime. Yes. They also then at this point gave the names of these victims. So the adult victim was Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch, born in 1954. Uh, The oldest child was her daughter, Marie Elizabeth Vaughn, born in 1971. Uh, And the youngest, her daughter, Sarah McWaters, had been born in 1977. So I'm going to just pause here for a second before I get into their story, because I do want to tell their story a little bit, or at least what we know. But it should be said that at the t- at this time, they have only been able to identify the three related victims. There is still a fourth unrelated victim, Terry Rasmussen's daughter, that we have not been able yet to identify. But we'll get back to her. Her DNA is obviously in the system, right? They're working on it. There's an update. Okay. So Marlise had been born in Stamford, Connecticut. She was the second oldest of five girls. Uh, her parents separated when she was really young, I think probably around like seven or eight. Um so she had split her childhood between Connecticut and California. She lived with her dad for a while, then she moved back into her with her mom. Uh, she had been married twice, first to Marie's father, then to Sarah's, uh, but both marriages had ended in divorce. Uh, she and her daughters, they had all last been seen in 1978, 
very similar to Denise Bowden, actually, where Marlise, Marlise and her daughters attended Thanksgiving at her mother's house in La Puente, California. She brought with her a new boyfriend, a man she had identified as Terry Rasmussen. So, yeah, like I said, it follows this very familiar pattern. She and her mother have a fight over something stupid, as you do with your mother on Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. She leaves the gathering with Terry Rasmussen, and neither she nor her children were ever seen by their family again. Uh, Marie and Sarah were six years old and one year old at this time. So they never reported her missing, which isn't to say they weren't looking for her. They actually did hire a private investigator in 1985. But that investigator failed to turn up any leads. And I don't think they thought it was anything criminal. Mm-hmm. I think they thought that she didn't want anything to do with them and had moved away and they had no way to get in touch with her. Like, All right. Yeah. At least that's the overwhelming impression I get. And like I said, like <laughs> they were posting on an ancestry board. Like they were looking for her. I think they just didn't realize the gravity of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, they did release a statement that was read as part of the June 2019 press conference. This day comes with heavy hearts. Marlise, Marie, and Sarah were so loved by our families, and they are greatly missed. We take solace in finally having the answers we have longed for. So, like I said, there are still a lot of questions in this case we don't have answers for. Uh, Denise Bowden's remains have never been found. Um, we also, like I said, we still don't know the identity of the fourth Bearbrook Bearbrook victim, and we also don't know who her mother is or what might have happened to her. Um I assume her info is is in like the DNA. There, cool. I, I think they're going to be able. I think when they do find her, it will be through finding this, finding her daughter, uh, which they are working on. Um, Barbara Venter is on the case. Uh, so, <laughs> according to the latest updates, which are from January of this year, uh, her research suggests that the girl and her biological mother may have relatives in Pearl River County, Mississippi. She believes this is going to sound. It just sounds ridiculous, but like. I feel like this is the point where she has traced the family tree back to these common ancestors, and now she's building this tree out. So what this update comes for, or this update kind of came in the form of, if you're a descendant of this person, please submit your DNA so we have something more to work with. That being said, they think she may be descended from either Thomas Dead Horse Mitchell, Mitchell, born in 1836, or William Living's born in 1826, which just goes to show, like, how far back in the family tree they have to get before they can it sounds exhausting. go back again. Yeah. Uh, she is estimated to have been born between 1975 and 1976, uh, possibly in California, Texas, or Arizona. She had slightly wavy brown hair and had a slight overbite that may have been noticeable. It should be said, it seems likely that there may be other victims of Terry Rasmussen still unaccounted for. I mean, it seems incredibly likely. Yeah, still detectives kind of working to track down where he had been. There's several, um, I would say, like, hints of other women he may have been with. Like, I think there's a case where he visited his biological, or he he was married before all this, and he had, like, four children. He, like, showed up. The last time they ever saw him was he just kind of showed up. Um, at their house and he had a girlfriend with him so they want to know who the girlfriend is and make sure she's okay um there was a family he was sighted with in california um and they're worried about this family because he was fired at that time for uh stealing a bandsaw from his place of work oh god which doesn't bode well that kept me up at night between denise and the his last victim there was like 15 20 years right yeah i I get the impression, at least for the timeline, like, he was with Marlise, and then he was with uh, Denise, and then we don't know where he was between, essentially, yeah, Denise Bowden, 1985 and 2000. Yeah, I don't like the possibility, but he's 
he's definitely killed more women during that point. Like, no one has a 20-year cooling-off point unless you're BTK, but that's another breed yeah, of he, dick. He's definitely a serial killer, but I also don't feel like he necessarily, like, I don't know. I haven't really, I, I said we weren't going to talk about Terry, but we're going to sit here and talk about Terry. I feel like there's, like, two scenarios here is either, like, his method of murder is that he forms these relationships with these women to draw them close and kind of isolate them and then murders them. Or it's just kind of like he is a serial just abuser and sometimes the women he um, he forms relationships with ends up dead. Like he had he has a surviving wife. So it isn't like he killed every woman he's ever met. But at the same time, the women in his life tend to turn up dead. So... Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's probably the first. Yeah, I would say he. I don't think he's like a classic serial killer, and then no, he feels I mean, this drive. I think it's just well, some I don't know. sociopaths or psychopaths. I can't remember which one. Um, they they get off on bringing people in close and then mm-hmm. like hurting them. Like that's their thing. It's the emotional connection. Like the other person thinking that everything is okay. That you know what I mean. Like an H. H. Holmes situation. Yeah, that's true. Kind of playing the long game. Yeah, because it it is a game to them. And then they get bored and they kill that person and they move on to the next one because they don't want to have to deal with everything that's like, okay, now get the fuck away from me. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's exactly like H.H. H. Holmes. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Just, hello, I'm Emily and I'm trying to reference as many serial killers as I possibly can during one of our few actual true crime episodes. Yep. Gotta fit them all in, like Pokemon? No. Um, I can, I could do it. So yeah, that is the story of the Bear Brook murders and fucking fascinating. I hope you go listen to the podcast because the podcast is just so good. Even if you know all the twists now, cause I spoiled it for you, but it's still, there's more details and interviews and he does an amazing job. I'm going to listen to it again after I finish, um, my book. I think about this is like my third free listen. Yeah, it's yeah. good. So please do go listen to that. Jason Moon is fantastic. Hats off to him as a journalist. Yeah, he's a good public radio voice. Mm-hmm. Mm, man. All right. That, we got some goofs in. It was hard, but... At least they were all at Terry's expense. Oh, I would never make a joke at the expense of a small child. Well, no, a dead small child and a live one. <laughs> nah. <laughs> God, I sound like such an asshole. Yeah, I was like, I don't think this is having the intended effect it you're going for. It doesn't. It didn't. It really let's, didn't. This is my call trauma it a response. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, if you know who the unidentified victim is, we are. Please contact the police. Go call um, the police. Do not talk to us. But also, we are at Afternoonified on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can go to getafternoonified.com to check out old episodes. You can donate to help us pay the bills, or you can find very cool merch, uh, that's super cute. And all of the proceeds for that are going to Black Lives Matter. Hell yes. And then you can email us at afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com for whatever you need. I mean, we're not going to like go grocery shopping for you, but we can answer questions. go grocery shopping for myself. Yeah, that's... If I could get one of you guys to do my laundry, I think we might have something we could work out. But anyway, uh, we'll see you next time. That's that that spiel went into a weird place there at the end. Okay, it did. Yeah. Goodbye, Bye. everybody. We love you.
I'm gonna need you all to roll plus charm to do the ad. That's a five. I got a ten. Eight. All right, Travis. Buddy can manage to get out the name of the show, but not much else. Monster Pod! Sadie, Jimmy's gonna be able to get out the premise, but you didn't roll high enough for any spoilers. Monster Pod is a real play Monster of the Week podcast where four government-employed idiots try to save the world. Sarah, Thomason rolled high enough to finish the ad. Releases every other Friday here on So Below Media. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is as above, so below.